not ourselves, but in our immediate nuclear family, um, three sons married, two babies, and mum went to heaven. So it's been quite the compact 21 months. And we're going, whew, it's been some time. You ever had a time like that where life's crazy? Well, this morning I want you to think about something. If you take out your outlines. There's a young man. He's 15 years old. So Oliver, you have to think back a little bit, okay? 15. This man is 15 years old and a very powerful invader. Think ISIS has just invaded New Zealand and they take a quarter of the population, the good-looking, the athletic, the popular, they take them away. Just like Boko Haram did with those girls. You remember that? They're completely dislocated. We're going to kick off a series on the book of Daniel. And Daniel was a young man, and we're going to look at that over the ways to come. But my point is this, and I want to start off with this. I don't know whether you noticed over the Christmas holidays in the last sort of like year, it seems to me like many of the values that have historically created a very healthy culture have been turned upside down and inside out. Now Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, warned very clearly in the word of God that the culture is headed for collapse. Did you hear that? Collapse. When it reverses the values that made it healthy. And when it denies truth, when it calls truth a lie and lie the truth. You've probably heard about all the false news. Just another symptom of our very recidivistic culture. Isaiah 5, 20, on the screen. You are doomed if you call evil good and call good evil. He's speaking on behalf of God here. When you get right, wrong, and wrong, right. Destruction is possible. Is that what it says? It says it is certain. When you call darkness light and light darkness, when right is considered wrong, and when wrong is considered right. When you claim what is bitter is sweet, and what is sweet you call bitter. A reversal. This is a very sad situation. And it actually was addressing a situation of the, in the nation of Israel 2,600 years ago. And that nation had fallen into three traps. The first trap it fell into, and there's lessons for us, is idolatry. We don't say that these days. We don't idolize, do we? What is idolatry? Idolatry is idolizing things that aren't God. What could that be today? We may not worship statues of stone, but they could be made of metal or bricks and mortar. And we worship at that and we give our lives to them. Way above the priority of God. Israel also fell down terribly when it came to meeting out justice. They treated people unjustly and unfairly. And when you went to the judge, it was a lottery. Maybe you got a straight one, maybe you got a squiggly one. And then of course, immorality. Immorality, they said, God, we know what you say, but we want to do what we feel. So on top of this, prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zephaniah started sending the alarm bells. 
that the people of Israel were disobeying God and they were going to lose their freedom. I don't make you, but I value my freedom. But they were warned. And sure enough, you history buffs know this, around 600 BC, the emperor Nebuchadnezzar, the powerful Babylonian ruler and empire, invaded Israel and they destroyed Jerusalem. And as I mentioned, they took around about 25% of the population captive and took them and held them away in Iraq for 70 years. So these are not these girls that have just been taken a few years ago. They were permanently deported and taken back for 70 years. So they lost their freedom. Why? Because they were not paying attention to what God had said. And the collapse of that culture was shook everybody to the core. They never expected it in one sense. Now another guy who had been warning Israel was Asaph. And he wrote 12 of the Psalms. You realize that all the Psalms weren't written by David. It's about nine plus authors. You know Moses wrote some Psalms? Yeah, and many others. So in Psalm 82, and by the way, Asaph wrote 12 of them. Psalm 82, God indicts unfair judges and dishonest leaders. And boy, do we have those in the world today. Psalm 82, 1, Psalm of Asaph. God presides over heaven's court. He is the God of justice and love. People think about the love all the time, but they remember justice too. Otherwise, it's a one-eyed view. He presides over heaven's court and he pronounces judgment on the judges. He says this, How long will you judges hound down unjust decisions and show partiality? If somebody's got a bit more money, nah, and gets after them. He says instead, give fair judgments to the poor and the orphans. This is God's heart. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and defenseless. Rescue the poor and the helpless and deliver them from heartless evil people. Because the leaders are foolish. Hmm. Do we have to think very far these days about that? Because the leaders are foolish and lack understanding. People are living in dark times. Here it is. And all the foundations of society are shaken to the core. Sounds a bit like today's news to me. The foundations of our moral and ethical values. We have a visitor in our house in Australia and she is scandalized. She works with equivalent of SIFs and she's scandalized about what they're trying to push morally on five-year-old kids sexually in the classroom. Saying that things like, I'm just going to say it, gay marriage is absolutely acceptable and they role play it in the classrooms. You cannot pull your kid out of it. She knows. Things like this calling wrong right and right wrong it's like calling adultery right who cares everybody does it fornication well all the guys and girls are doing that that's wrong whichever way you cut it just because everybody else does it and by the way everybody else does not do it that's a lie for a start it doesn't make it right the foundation of our um, of freedom of speech and freedom of religion is being challenged there's a camp in australia again and what goes there is coming here who've been severely prosecuted for not renting out their facilities to other groups who want to use it for immoral purposes. What happens to our freedom of religion, guys? So, we are living in a rapidly changing world that our grandmothers would have a heart attack seeing what's going on. And the decaying culture. In the middle of all of that, God wants you to be a rock of stability. 
So I'm, gonna, I'm doing a series called Stand Strong because this is a foretaste of things to come. Mark my words, in New Zealand, in, within my lifetime, they will try and introduce thruples to our country. We have couples. This is thruples. It's already being pushed right now in France, Holland, and America. It's only a matter of time. So when that comes, what are you going to say? Oh, it's okay. It doing doesn't affect me. Or you're going to stand up for what God says as a true ambassador of his truth. God wants you to be a rock of stability. So today we're going to study the life of a 15-year-old teenager, Karen. A teenager named Daniel who lived through this destruction of his nation, taken as a POW for next 70 years, separated from his family. Imagine that, Michelle. Separated from his family, living in a very hostile culture. Now, the book of Daniel covers 70 years of his life. And he can teach us how to thrive no matter what they throw at you. And they are going to throw it at you and me in the years to come. So we're going to study Daniel in detail in in the next eight weeks. But today, I want to set up the theme. I want to pick it up from Daniel chapter 1, verse 7. If you have your Bibles, will you open them up? Otherwise, you can follow me on the screen. In the third year of Judah's king, Jehoiakim's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon besieged Jerusalem with his armies. Now, this is not clean, pop, pop, pop. This is slash and burn and cut and thrust. Imagine. Seizing Spartans? Think about that. He besieged Jerusalem with his armies. And God gave Nebuchadnezzar the victory. What? God gave Nebuchadnezzar the victory. You see, God can use secular leaders to correct and discipline his own people. He can use your boss. People like Pharaoh, God used. Yeah, he did. People like Cyrus and Darius the Mede, and of course Nebuchadnezzar. Here's a question. You ever feel besieged by your problems or conflicts that you have at work or all the stuff you have to do? Well, if you do, this series will be good for you. Now, after the battle, when Nebuchadnezzar returned to Babylon, he took with him the best of the sacred objects of the temple of God. Imagine that. He's saying, ha. Huh. He's demonstrating, I, I, I've won. And this... I've won over you guys, and I've got your good gold stuff with me. And the best sacred objects in the temple in Jerusalem, and you put them on display in this pagan temple in Babylon. Remember, God allowed this. He also ordered that the best young men of Judah be taken as captives and brought to his palace. Notice this. Select only the best looking, the strongest, and the smartest men of Israel. Notice the same values today as our culture has. Beauty, brawns, and brains. The world values appearance, athletic ability, and academic aptitude. And then he says, put them through a three, he's going to put them through a three-year cultural indoctrination, read, brainwashing program. He says, carrying on. Make sure they are well versed in every branch of learning. They are gifted with knowledge and good sense and have the poise needed to serve in my royal palace. 
teaches young men the language and the literature of the Babylonian culture. See, they're only to eat Babylonian food for they'll be trained for three years. Also, they were given new Babylonian names. So Daniel and his three best friends were renamed. I mean, this is even taking away your name. You've taken away your country. You've taken away your family. You've taken away even your name and your language. Daniel was renamed Belshazzar. Don't confuse him with Belshazzar. Two different things. Daniel is Belshazzar. The other guy, Belshazzar, we'll talk about later on in the book. Hananiah was named Shadrach. Mishael was renamed Meshach. And Azariah was renamed Abednego. Now, if you're a kid, the easy way to remember all of those names are, you know, rather than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's shake the bed, make the bed, and then to bed you go. <laughs> so, what's going on here? If you don't remember anything else, you'll probably remember that in the sermon. <laughs> these guys are trying to systematically reprogram these Jewish teenagers whilst their minds were still had some neuroplasticity there. They were trying to make them forget that they were Jews. And they're trying to replace the foundation of godly values with pagan values. And they especially had done that by separating the parents from the teens from their parents, and they're given new names and new identities. Now, would you say this 15-year-old's life had been shaken to the core? Would you say that? Would that be reasonable? Everything that could be probably changed is about to be changed. Yes. Yet, I want to point out something. Daniel, in spite of all of this, stood strong and grew into an amazing man of God that God used to even predict the year Jesus would die to the exact year. We'll look at that later on. Daniel kept his faith and his integrity intact in spite of all the caustic culture. And in spite of all that, he kept getting promoted and increasingly influenced. He was promoted... Uh, six times. He served and outlasted three unbelieving emperors, and he actually led two of them to God through his integrity and his faith. And at 85 years old, he was second only to the emperor. Now from Daniel's example, here we go. You will learn some skills of how to survive and how to thrive when people around you do not agree with what you believe, and boy, you're going to feel it more and more. It's not going to get less. It's going to get more. So I want to introduce a theme series. Next week, we'll get into the life of Daniel. So what do you do when your world is all shook up? How do you stand strong when your life doesn't go as you planned? Because you know what? I bet Daniel didn't even have this on his agenda. I guess he was a young teenage guy looking for love, thinking he was going to get married, have babies in Israel, and just build his house and do his deal. But life did not turn out as he planned. How do you stand strong in an increasingly secular culture? How do you stand strong through a death or divorce that you didn't see coming? through dire dilemmas and bankruptcy and hundreds of other things that can literally upend your life. Three simple suggestions to help us get started. Number one, don't be surprised by adversity. Don't be surprised by adversity. The collapse of his nation was a shocker, but it wasn't unexpected. As a teenager, Daniel had heard Jeremiah and Zephaniah warn, your freedom's gone if you carry on the way, behaving the way you are. 
You are free to make your choices, but you are not free of the consequences of those choices. And the same principle applies today. So when your world is shaken up, you and I should remember that this is not heaven. That's coming later. You and I live on a broken planet. Remember that. This is not the American dream. The American dream is bankrupt, I've got to tell you. 1 Peter 4.12 Dear friends, don't be shocked or surprised when you suffer through painful tests and trials as if something strange is happening to you. What do you normally say when you don't understand? You normally say, why, God? You see, don't be surprised or shocked when you suffer through painful tests and trials. Friends, shake-ups are normal in a broken world. If you have corruption on your hard drive, it's only a matter of time until it brings that system down, and you'll find about it. John 16, 33, Jesus speaking. He says, in this world, you will, you may want to circle that word, will, you will experience difficulties. In other words, your world will be turned upside down. You may feel disoriented. You may even feel nauseated, sick to the stomach. But then Jesus says, take heart. In the middle of all of that, take heart. I have conquered the world, and I've told you this so that in trusting me, not your boss, do not put your trust in your boss. Your boss is fickle. God is faithful. You will be, so that putting your trust in me, you will be unshakable and deeply at peace. And that's what people want these days. That's what they need. Jesus warned us so that it won't cave in or fall apart. Now, I'm going to give you a verse now. I didn't put it up uh, in your outline, but you probably never, ever, ever heard this in church before, in any church. And it's from Proverbs 24, verse 10. You may want to write it out the side. It says this. Listen carefully, because you won't hear this very often. If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? I'll read it one more time. If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Now, the typical human response to a crisis is to stick the blame on somebody else, fix the blame on somebody else, and ask, whose fault is it? You know, and remember, blame is lame. So that's not a good move. Actually, there are four sources of shake-ups in your life. Number one is you, my old nature, my old nature. That's within us. Moral nature's within us. I am my own biggest problem. If you want to write in brackets after that, read, do some reading, get some scriptural evidence for that, just put Romans chapter 7 and read that this afternoon. That'll clarify exactly the inner problem. The second one is the world problem. That's around us. So the first one's within us, the next one's around us. And the world wants to pull you down to its level. And it will ridicule you and withhold, appro withhold approval if you don't lower your standards and compromise your convictions. Well, what's wrong with you? What are you? Some prude? Or priest? Whatever. And they will. They'll ridicule you if you do not come down to their level. The third potential source of a shake-up in your life is Satan. 
Now, I don't talk a lot about him because he is in a sandbox. I don't want to give him much glory. But he is evil and he is incarnate. And he opposes every good thing that you do. And another for a source of shake-up in your life, and people forget this, and this is what I'm going to spend my time on today, is God. God can shake your life up with problems and pressures. And this is what I want to look at. Regardless, though, of the source of your shaking, God wants to use it for good purpose. So the source actually isn't so important, not nearly as important as your response to the shake-up. So, second, any time your world is shaken up, you look for ways that God may use it for good in my life. Jeremiah 29 says this. God says, the plans that I have for you and he's the ones I want to get with. Our plans for good and not to harm you. They're plans to give you a hope and a future. I want to give you a quick sneak peek on where we're going. Five things that God did in Daniel's life provide a working example of how God may use challenging circumstances in your life. Firstly, sometimes God uses shakeups to inspect me. To inspect me. God, what I'm saying there, will use difficult circumstances to reveal and help me see what's really going on inside of me. If my motivations are out of sync, if my fears are unfounded, or my values are out of whack, or some lies that I believe. Somebody once famously said, people are like tea bags. You don't know what's really in them until you drop them in hot water then their true flavor comes out. Now, God already knows what's going on inside of you, but here's the deal. You don't want to face it. He wants you to see what's inside of you. So he brings it to the surface to shed some light. His Holy Spirit focuses some light on the issue. Jeremiah 17.10. The Lord searches and examines and searches our hearts and examines our deepest motives. So why does he do that? So that he can give to each person his right reward according to how he has lived. Now notice there in that verse, clearly the Lord examines our motives. And God inspects us because he's much more interested in your integrity than in your image. See, Image can be one thing. What's really going on can be a very different thing. Some people are about impression management. You can't get past that with God because he's all-knowing. So God inspects us. Image is what everybody else can see. Integrity is what and who you are in the dark. And God says, I test you so that you can see your own heart. A good example is this. Have you ever wondered why it took the children of Israel 40 years to cross the Sinai Desert? When if you're doing it with that number of people, two months is adequate. Two months, 40 years. How come? Well, let's look at this. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2. God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. Why? Here it comes. To humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you'd keep his commands. Now, I want to say something straight up there. God already knew what was in their hearts. The point is, their obedience or disobedience had to be proven in history and recorded so they could see the bankruptcy of their own hearts. Now, what's the desert of your life? 
The desert of your life, Marlene, is when you can't feel God next to you. You can't sense his presence. When you don't sense that closeness. And sometimes when that happens, God is wanting you to do the right thing even though you don't feel like it. And actually, friend, you're not living by faith until you, the feeling, you're acting, but the feelings are not there. This is a, a test. And the test is this. Will you trust me? Now, your reactions to difficulties can be used as a measure of your faith and your commitment, your maturity, and your integrity. So what matters is your spiritual maturity. In your spiritual me is not how high you jump when you're sensing God's presence. The test is how straight you walk when you don't feel him the rest of the week and you have a little sense of a presence, his presence. When you're in the desert, in the wilderness, he's asking, will you trust me? Will you obey me? So I want you to write down a question. I'm going to give a little question with each one of these. Here's the question to ask about when God uses problems to inspect me. The first question you need to ask, what does this problem reveal about moi, me? What does this reveal about me? Because when your whole life is being shaken, you're on shaky ground and the foundation is unstable, what does this problem reveal about me? Is my heart getting overly anxious when God is using the situation to inspect me? Second, another reason. Sometimes God shakes things up to correct me. And this is what happened to the nation of Israel 2,500 years ago when they'd fallen into idolatry and immorality. And God says, I'm going to cure you of these addictions. And so he allows them to be hauled off into a foreign country for 70 years. When they came back, 70 years later, they were cured of idolatry. Hebrews 12.8 says this. God corrects all his children. And if he doesn't correct you, then you don't really belong to him. Because God promises to discipline his, uh, his children. Believers need to endure this dis- divine d- discipline. He goes on. God corrects us for our own good because he wants us to be holy. We don't hear enough about that these days. God wants us to live holy, blameless lives as he is. Now, isn't this true? This next part. It's never fun to be corrected. In fact, at the time, it's always painful. Anybody say amen to that? Yeah, you know what it's like when you're getting corrected. But if we learn to obey by being corrected, we will do right and live at peace. Now question, did you benefit being corrected as a child? Of course. It's how you learn to talk, how you learn to walk, how you learn to eat and be nice and share your toys. A parent that doesn't correct their children doesn't love their children. Now how many of you who have been parents would rather have not corrected their children from time to time? Anybody apart from me? Yeah. It's not fun for the kids. I mean, sure as heck isn't fun for the parents, right? But sometimes the only way to train is through pain. Let me say it again. The only way to train is through pain. Next verse, extremely important. When God spoke to the Ten Commandments to Moses, he spoke to them aloud. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he says, I will not only shake the earth, 
but the heavens too. What does this mean? By this he means he will sift out everything without a solid foundation. He's talking here about our lives. So that only the unshakable things will be left. So God sifts your wife to help you realize all this temporary stuff will ultimately be discarded. God sifts and refines our character and refines our faith that is going to last forever. It's the real deal. Job 5.17 says this, Consider yourself fortunate if God, all-powerful, chooses to correct you. The famous scholar C.S. Lewis said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures and he shouts to us in our pain. See, we only tend to change human nature when the fear of change is exceeded by pain. We get chicken. But when the pain ramps up, then we jump. So sometimes God allows pain and problems in our, and shake-ups in our life to inspect us, what's really in you, to correct us like he really did with Israel. And instead of going, why me? This is when you need to ask the question, what is this problem teaching me? What is this problem teaching me? What should I be learning from this problem? Third, sometimes God shakes things up to actually direct me or redirect me. He wants to point us in a new direction. Proverbs 16.9 says this, A person may plan his own journey, but the Lord directs his steps. Now one way God can direct your steps is he can use problems. They have a way of getting our attention. Have you ever noticed that problems often change your plans? You have a plan and you have a problem. Next map, you get redirected. Does that happen to anybody else in their life apart from me? Yeah, problems redirect you. Again, Proverbs 20.30. Sometimes the Bible says it takes a painful experience to make us change our ways. I'm not doing that again. Ouch, that hurt. Wasn't fun. I'm going to avoid this. Look, think about the prodigal son. It was only when, when he, when he had all the money, daddy's money, he was happy camper. Wine, women, song, parties. Completely wasting it. But it was only when he ran out of money and therefore friends and food that he, the Bible says, I love this phrase, he says, it came to, he came to his senses. And one of the effects of a real shake-up and a change in your life is it forces you to think about what's really important. Stuff that's easy to ignore when things are going good and you're kind of like on autopilot. You know that mode that you just go through life in sometimes? Now when David's life fell apart, he wrote this. Psalm 119, verse 59, I have thought about my life and I've directed my feet back to your written instructions. David's saying, now they've got a whole fistful of problems and I have no clue what to do. I'm redirecting my life back to you, God, and to your word. And that's a word for some of you today. Now, if you want to get the most out of your problems, at this point you need to ask, where is this problem leading me or redirecting me? Where is it leading me? Number four. Sometimes God shakes things up to protect me. 
often problems are the preparation for success. And it really comes down to a matter of faith. Will you trust God? Well, life seems totally incomprehensible. Joseph, for example, is a great example and an encouragement to me. He had a vision that one day he'd be doing a particular thing for God, but for the first 40 years of his life, everything seemed to go completely wrong. First of all, his own brothers stiffed him royally. They flogged him off as a slave to some Egyptian slave traders, sold him into slavery. He gets taken down to Egypt, gets a job as a slave in his his boss's home. But the wife of the boss thought, hmm, this young chap is a good-looking fella. I think he'll have an affair with him. You read it. And by the way, just what I'll say, just because the Bible records something doesn't mean to say it condones something. It is very honest. So the wife of the boss is attracted to him. She thinks she'll go after him. But he's thinking, there's no way, Jose, his integrity protects him. So she gets ticked off. She gets spurned. And she accuses him. Then he goes from bad to worse. She then accuses him of rape, which he's then flung into jail for the foreseeable rest of his life. What did he do wrong? For a crime he clearly never committed. Everything appears to have gone wrong in his life, but he's exactly where God needed him. And through his, a series of God-directed circumstances, the second half of his life, he ends up second in command of Egypt and helps Pharaoh save the most powerful nation of that time, including his own nation. So sometimes God is protecting and repositioning you with a problem in your life. Now, when it was all over, I love what Joseph reflected. And he said this to his brothers who had betrayed him. When the whole thing started, who were jealous of him. I love his perspective. In Genesis 50, 20, he says, You, you lot, you brothers, you scallywags, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. That is incredible perspective. So when you're in this phase, maybe you ask yourself, how could this problem be protecting me? And finally, number five, sometimes God shakes him up to perfect me. To make you and me more like Jesus Christ. To grow in character. To grow you and me up. First Peter is really clear about this. Brilliant, typical Peter fashion. He says, after you have suffered for a while. After. The God of grace who calls you to share his eternal glory in union with Christ will himself perfect you and give you firmness and strength and a sure foundation. Friend, you are not taking your car or your career or your cash to heaven. You are taking your character. God is using your earthly journey to perfect and grow your character. The easy parts in eternity, right now, friends, you and I are in school. Right now. He's honing that character up. He says that James, again, the brother of Jesus, again, a brilliantly practical man says this, for when the way is rough, your patience has a chance to grow. So let it grow. Don't try and squirm out of your problems. For when your patience is finally in full bloom, then you'll be ready for anything. Here's the end goal. Strong character, strong in character, full and complete. 
See, when the way is rough and challenging, James says, did you notice what God wants to do? He wants to grow your character to be full and complete. You may want to write this somewhere in your outline. Pain is the high cost of growth. It's the path to maturity. So knowing that God can even use the tough things in my life to inspect me, to direct me, to correct me, and even perfect me, what should my response be? Romans 5.3 says this. We can rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they are good for us. They help us learn to be patient. And patience develops strength of character in us, and it helps us trust God more each time we use it. Now, your problems will become really serious problems when you lose perspective. When you give up on important values. When you start to lose your sense of humor and start feeling sorry for yourself and start to have pity parties. There should be red lights flashing about then. Something's wrong. I'm losing it. And when you start to get bitter and blaming everybody else for your unhappiness, that is a real problem. And God is saying to you, don't be surprised when you experience adversity. I can use it in your life at least five different ways. I can inspect you, correct you, direct you, protect you, and perfect you through it. And when you do that, and in that phase you ask, how can I grow from this problem? How can I grow from this problem? Finally, when your life gets shaken up, third point here is trust God for what I don't understand. When there's a problem in my life, and I go, you know what? This one absolutely makes zero sense. In fact, it's negative zero. Gee, that's an interesting number. Remember these last two verses when you're in that position. Proverbs 20, verse 24. Since the Lord is directing our steps, why try and understand everything that happens along the way? What that's saying is some things you will just never understand this side of eternity. And lastly, Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust the Lord with all of your heart. Don't depend upon your own understanding. In other words, you are able to figure it all out sometimes. Honor the Lord with everything you do, in everything you do, and he will give you success. So folks, I hope you've seen just from this brief pricey that God doesn't want you to just survive through tough times. He actually wants you uh, to, to thrive like Daniel did. And we'll get into that in great detail in the weeks ahead. He wants you to, to, to thrive in a hostile culture, which is going to become increasingly hostile to Christians. And he wants you to have greater influence and to be used by God in amazing ways, just like Joseph did and Daniel. And that's what we're going to look at in this series. Next two weeks, uh, we're going to look at Daniel as a youth. So if you've got young folks that aren't here, I know many are still away on holiday, but I'd encourage you to bring them along to that. Let's bow our heads. Just before we pray, I want to, with your eyes closed, let's do a little self-evaluation. Just ask God these questions. Here's the first one. Lord, are you using these problems that I'm going through right now to inspect me? These frustrations. If so, what do they reveal about my life? 
Is there a weakness? Is there a misplaced priority in my life? Is there some place I've compromised the truth and you're trying to show it to me? Then say, Lord, are you using this problem to correct me? If so, what do you want me to learn through this problem? I'm not going to ask why. Why is this happening to me? I am going to ask, what do you want me to learn? What do you want me to know? Lord, are you using this problem not just to inspect or correct, but are you using this problem to direct me? If so, what direction do you want me to take? What do you want me to change? Where do you want me headed? And Lord, are you using this problem to protect me? Did that thing not happen because you knew something that I didn't know? Was I walking into a bigger trap, a bigger problem, a bigger difficulty, and you protected me? If so, Lord, I just want to tell you that I trust you because you know best. You can see the future. Thank you for protecting me. And God, I definitely want you to protect me. And when there's something that I want that will be bad for me, don't let me have it. I want your will more than mine. And then say, Lord, are you using this problem to perfect me? You see, God's at work in your life, even when you don't recognize it or even understand it. God's work in your life is not dependent upon you fully understanding it. I want you to pray this prayer very simply in your mind. Would you say this? Dear God, I want to trust you with all of my heart. You just say that in your mind. I trust you with all of my heart. And I'm not going to depend upon my own limited understanding. God, I want to honor you in everything I do, at work, home, or anywhere else. And if I trust you and I don't depend upon my understanding, I honor you in everything. I know that you promised to give me success. I'm going to believe that. Teach me to live the life that Daniel lived in these weeks ahead. Jesus Christ, I want to trust you with all of my life as best as I know how, and I'm going to do it today. I recommit my life to you in the precious and powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all those who believe said, Amen. God bless you.